At Federal, we have products for every season and every pursuit. Our passionate and dedicated teams design, build, and deliver the world's best American-made ammunition, whether you're hunting, target shooting, or defending yourself and family. Our pride and hard work can be found in every box, ammo can, or bottle of ammunition. For us, it's always in season. It's federal season. Welcome to Federal Ammunition's podcast, It's Federal Season. I'm Jason Nash, VP of Marketing, along with Director of Media, Brian Kelvington. Our guest today, we're excited to have him, is Remy Warren, a federal ambassador. Now, Remy's a true outdoorsman. He started hunting and learning about conservation at a really young age. Uh, he, he consumed everything he could about the areas he hunted and the quarry available to him amid the mountainous landscapes. Most important, he began chronicling his adventures to share and inspire others to live the lifestyle. Remy, uh, welcome to the podcast. We're glad to have you today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be able to kind of chat with you here. So just a little bit of background that we picked up on Remy. Uh, after high school, he began working as a guide, outfitter, conservationist, writer, photographer, videographer, and TV personality. If that wasn't enough, he started Out West Outfitters in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana, where he specializes in elk and deer hunts on public land. He's since expanded to include booking hunts in New Zealand and Africa. To pile on top of that, Remy also hosts a podcast, Cutting the Distance with Remy Warren, appears on episodes of Meat Eater, and is the editor of Western Hunter Magazine. <sighs> so that all said, uh, the first question out of the gate, Remy, is when do you find time to sleep? <laughs> I don't know. I've been wondering that myself, especially lately, because uh, actually we're, um, we're expecting our first child here. She was, her due date was yesterday, Ooh. or two days ago. Um, and so I've been trying to get a lot of stuff done before the baby's born, and I was thinking, Man, I think when the baby's actually here, I'll get more sleep. <laughs> Man, it sounds like a child might give you an opportunity to take a break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, congrats. That's exciting. You know, we, best yeah, of luck. Thanks. That's awesome. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. But um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's just a lot of different stuff. I think that um, my philosophy has always been, you know, I was like, I, I love every kind of aspect of hunting in the outdoors and then being able to share it. And, and through that, I've kind of, gotten into a lot of different things and kind of have a lot of different jobs, but, um, you know, it's all based around hunting and then sharing hunting knowledge. And, uh, something that I just, uh, I'm so uh, obsessed with and love so much that it, that it really doesn't even seem like work, you know? Yeah. That, and that's the best kind of work. Right. And, you know, we, you kind of just answered our question, which is, you know, you average 300 days of the year in the quote unquote wild. So I, I guess you truly do have to have a passion and an obsession for it to, to spend that much time doing it. Yeah, definitely. It's like, um, you know, it's just, but now it's just more of like, it's, it's our lifestyle, even with my wife and whatever it's, it's what we do. It's, it's kind of how we live our life. And, um, you know, it just is, it's, it's cool to be able to kind of do that for work as well, where it doesn't even feel like it. Cause if it, if it did feel like work, you, there was no way you could do it because it's just, mm -hmm. it'd be, it'd be too daunting. I think. <laughs> Well, you're quoted, Remy, as saying, all hunting knowledge is gained by trial and error. Um, I think a lot of people can relate to that. But can you expand on what you mean with this premise? Yeah, I mean, I think, 
one of the one of the things that I've learned over the years is, you know, at, it is like even as a hunter, you just got to like be out there and do it and, and get those experiences and learn for yourself. Um, you know, I think that like there's certain tactics that work and it's 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 not a tactic. I mean, even even tactics that were passed down or, or tactics that I tell people, it's like I learned everything I know kind of by just being out there a lot and doing it. And I've kind of found ways that I think work really well. And I get to share those ways with, um, with other people, but I think it's just from days and days and days in the field. And I, I know over the years too, I've, I've noticed, you know, like elk hunting and, and when I was coming up elk hunting or, or a kid and I'd read articles about elk hunting, I think, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was just knowledge that was passed from one person to another person. And then as I got out there and started doing a lot of elk hunting guiding and I started thinking like, man, some of the stuff that's, you know, people are saying is a little bit true, but not necessarily true. There's, there's other things that I'm learning here by trying different things and, and just kind of hunting the way that I, I want to hunt. And I started to kind of develop these tactics that helped make me more successful over time. And, uh, but I think that it's like, no matter, no matter what you do, every time you go out into the woods, uh, whether you're bird hunting, whether you're you know, big game hunting. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. Every time you go out, that's a very unique experience. And you're, you're learning something every time, whether you're successful, whether you're not successful, you learn probably just as much on the unsuccessful trips as you do the successful ones. But every time you go out, you're learning something new and you're kind of building that repertoire of, of skills and abilities that you have to hopefully find more success in the future. But what do you find most rewarding about this lifestyle beyond the gaining of knowledge via trial and error? You know, I think uh, there's a couple things that I I always kind of gravitate toward, and I like that I like that feeling of adventure. Um, I think that it's kind of something that gets lost in, you know, in day to day life and other things. It's like when you're out, it doesn't matter how many mule deer hunts you've been on, whitetail hunts you, but whatever. Every day is kind of like different. It's its own little adventure. You never really know what you're going to encounter. Uh, you don't really know what uh, what the day is going to bring. And I think that there's you know that that kind of element of it still feels it. It's just like this very primal feeling that you don't really get doing other stuff. Um, even like, it's like you're running errands or doing whatever at work or whatever it is. There's like this feeling of being outside, being in the wild out hunting that just feels very primal, very natural. And kind of like this, uh, this mini adventure that you get to go on every time you're in the field. You know, one of the great things about you is you've got this outfitting business, What's one of the most challenging aspects of that in operating an outfitting business? Yeah, I think like when it comes to the guiding stuff, I think that that's probably been the thing that's pushed, you know, hunting skills further and further because when it comes down to it, realistically, you're, you're pretty much, or at least at least the way that I operate is like, I want the people that I'm taking out to be successful, but you're taking out somebody that probably doesn't have the same physical ability as you, doesn't have the same skill set as you. And so you really have to kind of uh, develop your hunting skills based on like getting other people that don't have the same skills as you to, to be successful. And so you kind of find ways to make things easier in some ways. You kind of have like these, these challenges that don't present itself when you're out hunting for yourself. And uh, that's kind of been the challenge is like, you know, being like giving somebody else the same success that I could have, even though they don't, they haven't spent as much time hiking around. Maybe they aren't as in good a shape. So that's always a challenge is like um, getting or like finding success when that person maybe doesn't have the same skill set that you have. 
And it's like a challenge, but it's also kind of like very rewarding when it does work out when they do get something. It's almost most of the time I'm actually more excited when somebody else that I take out is successful than if I were out hunting myself and successful myself. Um, there's just kind of like this, you, you kind of pat yourself on the back. You're like, okay, cool. That was, that was good. It was hard. It was difficult for me to be able to do that, but um, it was a lot of fun and really exciting. And then to get to share in that experience with someone else is pretty rewarding. So I'd say it's like a hard part, but also probably the most rewarding part as well. You know, you, you don't have to name names, but have you had some pretty difficult clients? I've heard some horror stories. over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every guide, it's funny too, because like it, when guides get together, that's all you tell. You only tell your horrible stories. But, but I mean, a hundred, like to be honest, it, it's they're very few and far between. Um, I think just generally hunters are, like we're just like a really good group of people we've got good values we we enjoy the same things we love the outdoors and you know it's just really easy to relate with and i would say like 99 percent of the time maybe even 99.9 percent of the time uh, it's an incredible experience but you know as you know like when you're out hunting and maybe you're stuck with a person for uh, a week maybe even longer and who knows like maybe it's a, a backpack hunt where you're you're in a tent and it's like you don't know this person and they could be um they could be a very difficult individual or or whatever and so there's always those guide stories of like just uh, i don't even know like things that go wrong rodeos there's always those those stories of guys that are just they can just be complete a-holes or whatever and those are always the stories we tell because they're funny they're entertaining you know and it's like it's a way to just get it off your chest and it's probably the stories that most guys hear but that's not actually like the uh, the the standard day-to-day but it does happen (laughs) it's probably good to tell those stories too because guys thinking about like oh i want to be a hunting guy that sounds great it's like yeah you are going to have to learn how to deal with difficult people um, and you're going to have some funny stories at the end, but, uh, <laughs> it makes it worth it. Sounds like an outdoor channel possibility for a new show on outfitter secrets. Yeah, exactly. Like the stories, if you could just record the stories that guides tell other guides, uh, you'd pretty, you'd have some pretty good stories. I think some stories, you know, you couldn't even, even keeping the person's identity secret, you couldn't even share some of the stories cause it's probably, um, uh, I don't even know, but I think that uh, there's there's always some good ones. One that I like to tell is um, I had these guys uh, guiding. I was guiding at Elk Hunt, and uh, these guys were from I think New York. And so it was just kind of like you know we we went over everything, we shot the guns, all this stuff, uh, getting ready for the hunt, explaining like okay, you know every night we always, like the night before the hunt we kind of do a brief like here's what, you know, here's what we're going to pack. You know, you're going to pack up your bag. We're going to bring waters, lunches, you know, extra ammunition, rifle, um, all the spotting scope, whatever. So we go out in the morning and I've got the guys and they're just really slow getting everything together. And I knew that the elk were just late in the season, but um, I knew the elk were going to be like up at, at very crack of light and they're going to go into the timber and we needed to spot them before they went into the timber so we could go set up because they're, they're going to be pretty slow walking. So I was like, well, I got to find where these elk are so we can spend all day getting to where they go into the timber and wait for them to come back out. In the evening. So we get set up. Uh, I parked the truck and they're just taking too long. And I'm like, Hey guys, I gotta, I gotta get up here. Otherwise we're going to waste an entire day. So I said, this road leads to, it's a gated road. You just walk it. I'm going to be out here a little ways 
and um, you should be able to uh, fight. I mean, just going to be sitting there fighting me. So I, I go up ahead and I'm sitting there glassing and I see the elk and watching him go in the timber. I'm just kind of glassing the elk, waiting for the guys to walk up behind me. And I hear this noise. Like, what is that noise? Just like cattle. Bells. Like it didn't, the noise did not make sense. <clears throat> and when the guys came up behind me, they were all, all over their backpacks. They had, it was like, it sounded like Santa's reindeer coming down. <laughs> they had bells strapped all over their backpacks. <laughs> and I turn around and I'm like, what are you guys doing? I'm like, oh well, they're bear bells. We didn't, we don't want to get attacked by bears, and we read that you're supposed to put bells on your back. And they had bells, all like every strap that could have a bell had a bell. Three of these guys just jangling around the mountain. I was like, sorry, sorry to inform you guys. First of all, we're hunting elk. We need to be quiet. Second of all, I'm not really sure those bells would work. And third, you all have 300 wind mags that will protect you from the bear. So <laughs> we immediately uh, took all the bells off the pack and then slowly made our way up to uh, the elk to, to wait for them to come out in the evening. So it was pretty good. We, well, we actually did get on those elk, but uh, um, unfortunately one of the guy, the guy that uh, had the shot missed. So, Oh man, that that's a uh, that's yeah. a new one. I've never heard that before. That's awesome. Yeah, I was like, man, what what is, is it, Chris? I was like, I, my brain, uh, it's just like I'm just so I'm like you know focused on finding these elk, watching these elk. I'm looking through this flying scope, and I hear that noise, and it's like my brain did not register. It's like, what the heck is that? That is when you, that's a definite reason why Google doesn't always work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, that's a great leads in really nicely to another topic we wanted to get your thoughts on is there are a lot of new people getting out in the outdoors and, um, more people are hunting now, which is great for our industry. Um, and, uh, a lot of people who hadn't hunted in a while are getting back out. So, you know, when people are preparing to get out other than not wearing bells, is there any other fundamental that, that you would advice that you'd give them on? And how to prepare. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, especially for new people, I think it, it's always good, you know, kind of really think about the safety aspect of, of hunting and, and, you know, understand the, you know, just like the kind of the nuances of how to be safe in the field. I think that's one thing I see with new hunters is like, you know, muzzle control, gun control, um, being familiar with whatever they're hunting with, um, you know, spending time at the range and just, and just kind of like, I think there's a lot of things that you do that you kind of practice for. And then it comes to hunting and people are like, well, I just grabbed the rifle, uh, off the shelf and, uh, went out hunting with it. And it's like, well, you know, you should take it to the, you should, you should kind of have some forethought before you go out. I think hunting is like a very serious thing. Um, you've got a firearm, you're taking a life You're So there's, there's like a lot of steps in the process. And so just taking a little bit of time to familiarize yourself, to be proficient with whatever you're shooting. Like those are always really good things, um, for new hunters to think about. It's like opening day shouldn't be the first time that you, um, shoot your gun. And I, it sounds really weird, but there's, I mean, if, if you've hunted forever, you think, oh, like, yeah, that makes sense. Like I sight in my rifle, I do all this. I've had multiple people show up at camps where I've guided and we always, we always like first thing we do, we go shoot their, their rifle at the range. Mm -hmm. And I've had people like shoot and it's like, it's not even hitting the uh, plywood that's set out there at a hundred yards. 
And I'm like, man, something got messed up. And they're like, no, it was, it, it got sighted in when I got it. I was like, you got the, this is, this is iPhone sighted in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, come to find out it was like bore sighted at the sporting goods shop. Mm-hmm. Never had around been fired, never had it been actually sighted in. And you think that's funny, but that's probably happened to me more than a dozen times of guys just like saying like, oh yeah, it's, it's good to go. I, I bought it and the guy bore sighted it and the shit is ready to roll. Um, so those kind of things like new hunters, but you think about it, it's like if nobody told you that that doesn't work, uh, how would you really know, I guess. Right. Um, so I think that that's something. It's just like, you know, like really kind of taking the time to be prepared to, to learn about what you're going to be doing, especially if you're going out on your own. And then, and then trying to connect with hunters that have, have done it before. That's probably the hardest part for new hunters. But I think as like hunters, it's, it's always good to mentor someone else. I always uh, try to mentor a couple new hunters every year, kids or people that I know or what, get somebody else into it. But teach them, teach them. Because I think the way that I was started hunting was somebody kind of taught me, showed me the ropes, got me started. And I think those things that you can learn from someone are, are so valuable. And you can learn it so fast. It's stuff you can't really pick up in a book sometimes. It's just the the common sense things that hunters know, but a, a new hunter might not think about. Yeah, and we we love to razz each other as hunters. And we have to remember that if, if somebody new like that, it's, you know, it's a teaching moment. It's not time to make fun of them. Cause, yeah. Cause it, yeah, I mean, if you haven't been around it, you don't know. So that's, yep, that's a good exactly. good reason to go with a guide or connect with somebody who knows. Yeah, definitely. Remy, having said that, what about some of the pre-trip routines that you use that could help some of the, of our listeners? I mean, every trip's a little bit different, you know, I mean, from like the preparation standpoint, I mean, my, my big thing, like almost everything I do is Western big game hunting or like, not necessarily Western, but that style, like mountain hunting. Um, you know, so in the off season, I try to stay in good shape because I know that one, it's going to really benefit me for like just going day in and day out. And then when I shoot something, I'm going to carry it back to the truck. Um, so just having that like physical ability and, and staying fit is, is always nice. Um, and then outside of that, I mean, whatever I'm hunting with, whether it be a bow, whether it be a rifle, whether, whatever it is, I, I try to, you know, get out to the range, practice a lot, just be super proficient. So when that, that moment does come where I can take a shot, I'm ready. And then just when it comes to like gear prep, um, you know, I have to like packing's always been that thing that I just hate the most. <laughs> I actually just like in the past, I hated it so much. I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to just go out and I'll just like, oh, whatever. I, I just get by <laughs> with what I have and didn't really think about it because of that. I got pretty good at like survival situations. But um, outside of that, like now I just I do um, I like have a really organized list and every trip has like kind of like a packing list and I can really start to think about it, say, this is what I'm going to take. This is what I'm not going to take, especially when I'm planning like maybe a trip that's, you know, five people into Alaska that we're filming or something like that. None of the other people have been on that kind of trip. So I really kind of nail down those packing lists and try to make sure everybody's comfortable and we have everything we need and we don't forget anything. Um, so that's something that I do as well. Just like a lot of, a lot of prep work and a lot of packing and then, um, you know, like backcountry hunts, I kind of like, I go as far as like planning out every day's meals and separating them into bags. So then when I'm out there, it's already rationed for me and I can kind of just go off of that. That's a great tip. And you, along with the other meat eater, uh, team members create a lot of educational material that's been very helpful. And, uh, you know, as, as a federal ambassador, you, we appreciate 
the content that you share with our fans. And uh, I hope I'm not letting the cat out of the bag, but there's a really great video I just saw about making a Chuck fil sandwich, which uh, looks delicious. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you touch a lot on field dressing, you know, to the point of cooking and butchering. Uh, are there any tips? Because that's one of the most daunting things about hunting is actually with big game, having to handle the, the game when you're done. Is there any tips on hunters and maximizing the meat on the animal? Yeah. I mean, you know, like for utilization, I think, I mean, and I, I think probably this is many people's experiences. When I grew up, I really loved hunting, but to be fair, uh, my family was terrible at cooking wild game. It like, wasn't, it wasn't good. It was gamey. It was whatever. And as I got older and like, you know, started cooking and the cooking myself, I started to just like realize it's like, wow, wild game is actually way better. It just has to be kind of prepared in a way that's familiar and also good. And, and so I think kind of one of the things is just understanding the difference between wild game and, and domestic meat. And that it, the, the major difference is it's not as fatty. So you kind of got to treat it like it's a, it's a very, it's something that's very lean, but it doesn't have that fat. And then the other thing is, you know, incorporate it into every kind of meal that you have. So you can, whatever you like, just because it's wild game, you don't have to cook it the same way every time. You can explore, you can try different things. Um, you can have some of the same stuff that you eat day in and day out or, or some of your favorite things just utilized with wild game. You said like the Chuck filet sandwich. So it was just essentially chucker. You could do it with quail. You could do it with pheasant and making a Chick-fil-A sandwich out of um, wild game meat. And to be honest, it's uh, a lot better. I've, I've like toyed with the idea of like sitting out in front of Chick-fil-A and serving my Chick-fil-A for free <laughs> and seeing how many people are like, wow, this is actually way, way better. Yeah. See how long you'd, you'd last before they shuffled you off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I like how you talk about adapting to um, traditional recipes. I mean, I, I know coming back from Quebec a few times when there was um, a caribou hunting season, we'd come back and make caribou chili. Oh, that's the caribou chili is so good. I, I don't, it's probably one of my favorite wild game recipes was caribou chili. It's funny. Caribou like makes the best chili. I don't know what it is about caribou. I think caribou has like its own unique flavor and it's not lost in the chili. Like it's not, it's not a bad flavor. It's just a unique flavor. And I think that like caribou chili is probably the best chili you can make, honestly. Wow. Somebody other than my wife finally agrees with me on something like that, on a topic like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I don't know. I mean, I've had, cause you know, there's so much seasoning and everything in chili that you lose the flavor of whatever you're cooking in it. And for some reason, like caribou, like the best part of that flavor kind of carries through in that chili. I kind of think of caribou meat as like the lamb of the North. It's like, you know, lamb has a lamb flavor. It's not a bad flavor. It's just lamb is very unique in the way that it tastes. Caribou is the same way. It doesn't taste bad. It just tastes unique, especially later in the season. So what about some simple pointers when you're considering uh, prepping game like deer, elk, and moose? I mean, is there something, is there some do's and don'ts that are just easily obtainable for, for, um, for hunters, for especially new hunters? Yeah, I think the first thing, like uh, red meat, uh, let's say it's like venison, elk, whatever, it doesn't really matter, uh, red game meat. You just don't want to, well, any game meat, um, aside from maybe like some of the uh, uh, different birds, but you don't want to overcook it. And I think that that's the problem is, you know, you, you got to realize like it's not like a beef steak. It's not like a, it's not like pork. It's, it's just it's different in the fact that it doesn't have a lot of fat. 
lends it to being really, really good if it's not overcooked. Once it's overcooked, it kind of gets chewy, it gets gamey, it gets whatever the bad connotations are, but not overcooking it is step one. I would say step, well, I'd say that's step two. Uh, we got to go back because the number one thing is like taking care of it well in the field really, um, really kind of determines how well it's going to be at the table. So when you do get something down, you know, you have to, you have to go through the process of processing it quickly and efficiently. Um, you know, I, I you gut it if you, if you're, that's what you do or whether you do that or the gutless method doesn't really matter, but get the hide off, get the meat separated, boned out, cooled down, and then uh, taken care of, keep it dry, keep it uh, dirt free, keep it cool. And don't like, I, I mean, there's, there's so many times where I've had people say, no, pronghorn antelope is the worst meat. And it's like, well, you know, if you really look at the way they hunted, they're hunting in August, so they shot the antelope. Um, they maybe made a bad shot. It ran out. They went there. They gutted it. But, you know, there's it was whatever, gut shot or something like that. Then they drag it through the sagebrush uh, three, four, five hundred yards to the back of the truck. And they load it in the back of the truck. It's hot out. And they drive around the rest of the day uh, looking for another antelope or doing whatever. Then they get to camp and they let it hang and then they skin it. And then they throw it in the back of the truck again and drive home and dusts all over it. And it's like, if you did that with Kobe beef, it'd be disgusting, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's like when it comes down to the final product, I would say 90% of it is just the field care of it. So re being really familiarizing yourself with good field care methods, keeping everything cool, clean and dry, and then uh, taking care of it promptly and, uh, you know, like treating that meat like it should be treated. Like imagine it's like, okay, when you run a beef through a slaughterhouse, it gets, it goes from shot to processed immediately. And, you know, you got to kind of consider like do the same thing in the field, no matter what. And that, and that is definitely possible and easy to do once you kind of understand the process. So I think that has a lot to do with the quality of everything that you cook in the long run. So let's talk, you, you mentioned a little bit already about staying in shape, but uh, fitness and exercise, I mean, you, you're passionate about that. What are, what are some easy preseason routines that hunters should think about, you know, as part of their preparation for the season? Yeah. I mean, really like the best way is to, to do by doing, you know, it's like, if you're, if you know, you're going on a hunt where you're going to be hiking around and carrying a backpack, that's what you should do because you could do all the swimming, all the, I mean, yeah, you need to get your endurance and other things up and there's other things you could supplement, but one of the best things you could do is hike around with a, a weighted pack on if, if that's the kind of hunt that you're going to do. Um, just practice by doing whatever you're, you know, you're going to be doing, build those muscles specifically for that. And I think that that's, I'm always like a big proponent of that. And it's fun. You can, you can go out on the weekends, you can put a pack on, you can go hike around, or it's something maybe you could do in a gym on an incline treadmill or something like that, but just getting used to carrying a pack on carrying a little bit of weight on your back and walking uphill. That's really big when it comes to, you know, Western big game type hunting or mountain type hunting. Um, yeah, it's just like, so you're familiar and your body develops that muscle memory for kind of the activity that you're going to be doing the most while you're out there. That's great advice, Remy. And I'm, I'm going to utilize that advice too, as I getting ready for elk hunt. And I do like the treadmill personally. So I'm going to add some weight to a pack and they'll at the uh, club, they'll look at me like, what is that guy doing? Well, getting ready. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Getting ready. Getting ready. Yeah. Yep. You put it, you put that, put that treadmill on an incline and get your heart rate up and just get your, your body used to, uh, getting fatigued with that pack on 
the one thing that I found too, it's like, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I can just walk out my back door and climb a mountain. Um, but I know that like 90% of the population can't do that. So, uh, one thing that I suggest is like kind of mimic the, you can kind of speed things up so you can just, you know, go to that point where you're exerting yourself, your heart rate's getting higher and you've got that pack on and you start to feel those stress points. Your shoulders start to get sore. Your, your back starts to get sore. And once it starts, that starts to happen, then just keep pushing and pushing, um, and try to like get your recovery up because then what's going to happen is you're those muscles are going to say, okay, these are the muscles that we're activating. This is how we use these muscles when they get tired. And over the long run, you'll kind of build that endurance for it. It works pretty well. The last time we had some of your meat eater friends on, Steven and Giannis, we did a little, yeah. we did a little um, rapid fire. So we think we're going to continue that tradition since you're on today. Cool. And so all you need to do is answer with what comes to your mind first. This could be dangerous. Yeah, it could be dangerous. <laughs> What's your uh, favorite animal to hunt? Uh, meal deer or sheep. What's your favorite animal to eat and prepare? Elk and axis deer. Soccer, rugby, or American football? Uh, soccer. Favorite caliber for deer species? 300 Winchester short mag. If you were stranded on a mountainside, what's the item you cannot survive without? Shelter. Wine, beer, or whiskey? Ooh. <laughs> Mixture of all three. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's, answer. That's like a variation of the three wise men. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Call it a desert storm where I'm from. <laughs> What's your favorite seasoning for an elk steak? Uh, Montreal. Yes or no to steak sauce? Yes. A1, Heinz 57, or homemade? Uh, Mixture of all three. <laughs> <laughs> hunting or fishing and why uh, hunting but i do love fishing and um i don't know I, fishing gets you so far but there's just a little bit more of an experience when it comes to hunting but i do love fishing all right if so you say fishing you mentioned fishing i'll just go one step deeper fly fishing or casting topwater lures like a plastic frog at sunrise with smoky water oh Dang, man, I was doing topwater yesterday, but I was also fly fishing topwater, so I got to go fly fishing. Favorite bird to hunt, turkey, duck, or pheasant? Ducks. And last question before we wrap up this segment. You kind of hinted to it. Where are you at at becoming that first-time father? Are we? Do we have the bags packed? Do you have the, the diaper bag ready to go? The goal kit's all ready? Do you ready are ready to rock and roll? I got my tactical dad vest on, bottles and diapers and wipes. I'm ready. I'm ready to roll. <laughs> you got all the onesies picked out too, you know, and the outfit yep. to come home with. Oh yeah, we got it all. We're the, ready. The carrier. Yeah. Well yep. we could hit the go button right now and I'm like, sweet, ready to rock and roll. Well, thanks, Rebby. We'll uh we'll be back here in a minute with our tech talk segment. Yeah, sounds good. Meet the industry's widest variety of game-changing ammunition. However you shoot, and whatever you hunt, fortune favors the prepared. And nothing prepares you better than Federal Premium. It's a gold standard advantage delivered directly from the experts in premium ammunition. Find your Federal Premium Advantage today. Welcome back to It's Federal Season and our technology segment, Tech Talk. 
Thank you, Remy, for coming back for another segment to talk specifically about judging a whitetail or mule deer in the field. Being an outfitter, this is an important element when helping customers determine if a deer is what they're looking for, uh, if inches are a consideration. So first off, could, could you explain for the audiences uh, the scoring standards for a white-tailed deer and what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, so generally scoring systems, kind of when we talk about scoring, it's off the Boone and Crockett or Pope and Young scoring system, same system. But um, what it's doing is it's totaling up kind of the inches of antler. And then, you know, there's there's uh, length of main beams, length of all the tines, and then uh, inside width measurement, and then four mass circumferences. So it's totaling all that up and it gives you a good idea of how that deer compares to other deer. Um, now, when it comes to field judging, what you're doing is you're trying to kind of take this difficult system of all these numbers and looking at an animal on the hoof and saying, how much does that deer score? And uh, there's some different ways that I go about doing that. How do you approach the conversation with clients on what to look for in a trophy? Because everybody measures trophy differently. Uh, and that's what's great about, you know, the system. But what do you tell a client when he's making that determination uh, on what to win or what to shoot? Yeah, I, I always say don't get hooked up on numbers. Find what you want. You're going to be the one that's looking at that animal for the rest of your life, probably. It's going to be on your wall. Uh, it's not on my wall. It's not on anybody else's wall. You know, it's, it's whatever you're happy with because you know, sometimes trophy is just, hey, we had a really hard hunt. We struggled to find a deer. And this, this buck came out and it was like the right day or the right time. Or I know a lot of guys, it's like, hey, I was hunting with my dad and I had a great tag, but my dad was there and he happened to be there that day and I was able to take this deer. And that deer means more to me than anything. So when you say trophy, it's really just beauties in the eye of the beholder. There's a score system, but to be 100% honest, that score system doesn't really mean anything compared to the experience had and what you're looking for. So, um, you know, every time I go out or, or I kind of suggest this, it's like, this is your hunt. It's not my hunt. It's not anyone else's hunt. So, you know, whatever you're really looking for, that's, that's a trophy to you. And that's what we'll look for. So I guess that, that said, when, you know, if someone's out learning this and, you know, they want to at least understand what the trophy or, you know, what the deer quality is. I mean, is there, are there, what kind of things do you look for in terms of maturity of the deer? How do you tell the age just at a glance? Is there a quick tip for what people should look for on antlers? Yeah. I mean, you know, most of the time, like when it comes to mule deer, we're just looking for those, you can tell like the, the body shape and profile of the deer for an older, more mature deer. You can also tell by the way they act and the way that they're running off the other deer, um, especially during the rut. But most of the time, more barreled chest is like a, a deer that looks more like, especially mule deer when they look, start looking more square. Uh, that's when they're, they start to hit more maturity. Um, then when it comes to like, getting a, a basic idea of antler size. The method I use is what we call like rack bracketing. And that just essentially is from putting my hands on a lot of antlers and scoring a lot of deer. And you kind of just build these mental pictures. There's ways that you can, you know, if you're starting out, you can kind of measure the antlers based on the body proportions. So like mule deer will use the ears and the standard ear length of eight inches. And when they're kind of semi alert, the width would be like 22 inches. And it depends on where you're at. Um, the exact sizes and and sometimes you know you go as far as understanding the the distance of the eye to the tip of the nose and you can kind of ref use those as references to score the deer up but i think the best system would be if you're concerned about the score 
is just to start measuring as many antlers as you can, shed antlers, anything, and really being familiar with the score system. So you, when you look at an antler that you know the score of, you can immediately compare that to something in the field. Um, it's, I would say it's, it's the one that takes the longest to kind of understand, but it's extremely accurate and it's just the fastest because you don't really have to think about it. You can look at a deer and say, oh, I know exactly what that deer will score or be within an inch or two because you, you, you've scored so many different antlers. And that's the best way to do it, in my opinion. It takes a little bit longer, but um, I, I don't know. I think it's a pretty good system to use. And you just had a great blog um, using, about using camera on your smartphone to help field judge deer. Can you walk the audience through that? Yeah, definitely. So um, when you're getting started, you know, a good way is just once you familiarize yourself with the score system, say you're out there, you take your cell phone, your smartphone, your camera, whatever, take a picture of the deer. And then I kind of use like, I make a, I call it like a, a scale, like a measurement to scale. So whatever zoom level that picture is. So say you take the picture through your spotting scope, you got the deer there, then you can zoom in on it and just leave it at that specific um, zoom level because you don't want to change the scale of it. Then I'll grab either a piece of paper or even if I'm in the field, sometimes I'll just use pine needle or something like that. And I'll use those reference points that I talked about. So let's use the ears, for example. Um, in my area where I guide the mule deer ears, are generally about uh, seven and a half to eight inches. And that's from the inside of the ear to like, like, um, like you're looking at the ear front on like the inside portion to the tip. Um, antler span 20 to 22 inches, kind of under that semi-alert position. And then the eye diameter is what I use a lot. So it's about 1.3 inches. And so what I can do is I can use that stick or paper. Paper works really well, especially if you got a little pen. You make a, say, an eight-inch ruler based on the scale of that ear. So I can go eight inches and I mark it and I fold that little paper in half. That half would be four inches, fold it that in half and half. And that's, you know, you can break it out and actually make a little ruler right there on your camera with that piece of paper. And then you double it. You got 16 inches, whatever. So then you've got a ruler at that and you can put it right on the screen and start measuring up your buck. And it works really well uh with kind of pretty much any species it works good I, I can do the same thing on trail camera pictures or whatever and it's a really good way to just get a good idea of how long is that time and how long how wide uh, is that buck how much mass circumference should i start to calculate in and by doing that you can kind of just start tallying it up right there on your phone right there on your camera it works really well if you want to see this visually you can go to remy's website remywarren.com and you can click on the blog tab also, if you want to follow Federal's channels, you can see a lot more of his educational, entertaining content, uh, especially the cooking content from Remy, and check out that chucker uh, recipe that he had. Remy, thanks so much for joining us today, and we wish you best of luck on becoming a new dad. Yeah, thank you guys very much. Yeah, it was great to have you, Remy. Thank you. There's a time and a place for every season. This is that time, and these are those special places. When preparation gives way to anticipation, rituals, and traditions. Friends, family, forever. This is what you live for. It's time to celebrate the annual tradition like no other. 
It's federal season. Welcome back to It's Federal Season and the News and Notes segment. I'm Brian Kelvington, and it was great to see all the outdoor fans at the DUX Festival in Fort Worth, Texas, the weekend of June 25th through the 27th. As shows continue to come back online, we look forward to connecting with you at the events like the Buckmasters Expo coming up August 20th through the 22nd in Montgomery, Alabama, Game Fair in Ramsey, Minnesota, the weekends of August 13th through the 15th, and August 20th through the 22nd. Finally, the big celebration will be in Houston, Texas, as Federal and all the outdoor ammunition brands will attend NRA's annual meetings and exhibits. This year is a milestone event, as the NRA is celebrating its 150th anniversary. We look forward to seeing you, the fans of Federal and all the ammunition brands, from Vista Outdoor at the Lone Star State. If you like the It's Federal Season podcast, be sure to let us know by filling out a rating and review on iTunes. And remember, for us, it's always in season. It's Federal Season.